Now, I've already had more than one person come up to me this morning prior to worship service and say to me, yuck, Greg, why did you appoint that passage to be read today? The passage from Romans, the passage I haven't yet read. Why would you appoint that to be read today? Well, because this is intentional. I've been your pastor now for 11 months. And I have had a wonderful journey here with you thus far. I'm looking forward to many, 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 many more months to go, years to come in ministry here with you. My first Sunday here with you, I preached about my history, about my coming out, and I came out to you as well in that service. And I've mentioned a couple of times over the past year uh, elements uh, of my life, what it was like growing up, what it was like being in ministry for 29 years as a closeted gay man in hiding and in fear, what it was like growing up as a youth being forced to go through reparative therapy, um, going to uh, these counseling sessions and group counseling sessions where they tried to convince me not uh, to be gay anymore, as if that were even possible. It's actually, back in the 1980s and early 90s, it was a form of torture, actually. I shared that with you. But I've never shared my interpretation and approach to the Scripture passages that are often presumed to speak about homosexuality. And I gave lots of thoughts as to how to address this question. And at first, I thought I would simply come up here and said, here's what the Bible says about homosexuality. Amen. And go and sit down. And that would have been fine, and that would have been true. But it doesn't answer the question. What do we do with passages that at least appear to, on the surface, speak about this question, address this issue? And I'm going to visit a few of those passages today, but I wanted to begin with the one passage that actually has at least a smidgen of application to the question, and that's Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 27. So I want you to take a journey with me today as we read through this passage and discuss what it was that Paul was doing, what he was addressing, what he was dealing with. We'll talk about his cultural setting, his background, the reasons he may have been saying what he was saying here, and then we'll look at how, if at all, it applies to today. So Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, God's eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things God has made. So they are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not honor God as God or give thanks to God, but they became futile in their thinking and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God 
for images resembling a mortal human being or birds or four-footed animals or reptiles. What's Paul writing about here? What's he addressing? He's addressing the problem of idolatry, the problem of the worship of other deities. And he says here that the creator of this universe, God, the creator of this universe, Adonai Elohim, can be known through what God has created. By looking at the universe, by looking at the world around, you can see and understand that A, there is a God. You can learn B, about this God. And C, you can discover what it is that we are expected to do in relationship with this God and with other people. It is a teleological argument for the existence of God. That God can be known and understood and comprehended through the things that God has made through the majesty of the creation, the galaxy above, the earth around us, the oceans and the life teeming within them, the earth beneath us. We can know about God from what God has made. Instead, rather than believing in that God, the God who made all that is, the God who is and who cannot not be, the God who can be known through what God has made, Human beings have decided to worship the creation rather than the creator. The things that have been made rather than the one who made them. And they then worshipped human-made deities, idols. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal human beings or birds or four-footed animals. Or reptiles. He's addressing the problem of idolatry. Hmm. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the degrading of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So in other words, idolatry and sin come from the failure to recognize and worship God. Well, that seems about right. When we, when we do not focus in and recognize that God is the Creator of this universe and of us, and instead make ourselves God, it becomes easy to then worship ourselves and the creation rather than the Creator. That's the circumstance, that's the situation that Paul is writing about here. Idolatry and the sin that flows from it. He's not done. For this reason, God gave them up to degrading passions. And this is where it gets squirmy. The women exchanged natural intercourse for unnatural, and in the same way also the men, giving up natural intercourse with women, were consumed with passion for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the due penalty for their error. Now what's he saying? Because this seems pretty bad. Paul is saying that idolatry produces this stuff. 
Idolatry, the worship of other gods, the worship of those things which people have identified as being deities or other gods, that the worship of other gods results in this kind of stuff, results in these kinds of issues, results in same-sex relationships. And given his context, it makes sense that he would say this. He's dealing with a, coming from a religious expression that views sexual activity within clearly defined, bracketed contexts. And same-sex relationships are known in the Hebrew world principally and solely within the context of the religious practices of other peoples and their cultic religious practices. And so that's what he's writing from. That's where he's speaking from. He views same-sex relationships and attraction as flowing from idolatry. Worship Zeus, this may be a result. Worship Athena, this could be the result. Now, while an interesting argument and possibly applicable in their culture and day and age. Does this apply today? Does this reflect what we understand about human nature and psychology and why people the way they are are the way they are and why people are heterosexual or homosexual? No, it doesn't. We know from our studies that there is both a biological and a nurture and cultural element involved in sexual orientation and gender identity. Yes, God made people to be the way they are and who and what they are. And cultural context and culturation and neonatal context and developmental uh, pathways for individuals result in people being who and what they are. Not the worship of Zeus or Apollo, or Athena. In other words, people, men like me, are gay because that's how God made us and that's how we grew and developed in our childhood. Not as the result of idolatry and not as a choice made by myself. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. When I was growing up and I was forced to go through conversion therapy, reparative therapy to try to correct, quote unquote, the brokenness of my sexual identity, I was told that it was a choice that I had made, that God did not make me that way, and yet we know for a fact that that is precisely how God made me. And this was said to me, if you're engaged in this kind of activity, or if you have this kind of sexual orientation, then you are an idolater. No, I'm not. I worship Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I follow the God who created all that we see, Yahweh Elohim the creator of the universe. And my faith is in Jesus the Christ. In his life, in his ministry, his teachings, his preachings, his healings, his feedings, his grace poured out to us. In the sacrament of Holy Communion and his death and resurrection for us, my faith is in Christ. 
Not Zeus or Athena or Apollo. Christ. Not the creatures of this world. Christ. God. Since I'm not an idolater, this doesn't apply to me. And in fact, we know that it's not the case. This was Paul's understanding, but like so many things, Paul's understanding was culturally conditioned, rooted in a particular cultural expression and a particular understanding, and is not necessarily applicable to today. Wow. I could pull up other passages, but this one where Paul says this clearly indicates that it doesn't apply for today. Well, what about the other stuff, Greg? I mean, there's tons of other scripture, right? There's a few. There's a few. Well, what about Sodom and Gomorrah back in Genesis chapter 19? Sodom and Gomorrah has nothing to do with homosexuality but everything to do with inhospitality to strangers manifested here as attempted ritualistic gang rape of foreign religious emissaries. Read the story. Well, God said he was going to destroy uh, Sodom and Gomorrah for it. No, no. In the story, God had intended to destroy the cities before the angels ever went there. The story has nothing to do with homosexuality in any way. What about Leviticus? Leviticus 18.22 and Leviticus 20.13. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Okay. We pretty much ignore Leviticus. Huge portions of the book. The dietary regulations, we ignore them. When was the last time you had a ham and cheese sandwich or bacon with your breakfast or a bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwich? Or pulled pork sandwich, baby back, baby back, baby back ribs, or catfish, or a medium rare steak. All of these things are violations of the dietary regulations. And we ignore them. How about the rules on how we deal with matters of poverty and property? Charging interest anyone? That violates the Hebrew Scriptures, passing a hungry person on the street, passing a car that's broken down in the ditch, all of that, passing them by, is a violation of the Hebrew Code. What about clothing? Now, some people say, well, that's the women's wearing men's clothing and men wearing women's clothing stuff. Really? What about clothing made of multiple kinds of threads? Poly cotton blends, anyone? Check your tag, see what it is. If it's not one kind of material, you've broken the Hebrew Scripture. I could keep going. How about how you cut your hair or don't cut your hair? Or trim your beard or don't trim your beard? How about tattoos and piercings of any kind? Or wearing makeup? Or wearing gold or other jewelry? Offerings to God, are they perfect? Do you tithe? Hmm. Keep, keep, could keep going and going and going. So much of this 
is culturally conditioned, culturally specific stuff. To lift out of Leviticus and apply only a narrowly defined list of things that apply to other people while ignoring the huge swath of items that apply to you is hypocrisy and self-serving convenience at best. Most of us realize this. And so while these Levitical passages are still sometimes referenced, most people know that they really can't get away with applying them while ignoring all the stuff that applies to them. Indeed, it's even in the same chapter that some of these other passages are found. So no, you can't just pick and choose like that. So, okay, Greg, what about 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 10? And it even says in there, in my Bible at least, it even says in there homosexual. How do you deal with that? Well, the word homosexual wasn't first found in the, in the Bible until 1946 in the Revised Standard Version. It's a difficult passage to translate. Why? Because the two operative words, the two words that are most important in Greek, that are found in this passage that have given us so much trouble, frankly, are unclear. One of the words is an idiom, or used as an idiom, probably, and the other word is entirely coined, entirely made up by Paul. The word that is an idiom is actually the word for soft, as in soft robes. This robe that I'm wearing is soft. Malakoi means soft. Now, idiomatically, it could mean soft music or soft morals, possibly. But how in the world do they get translations like male prostitutes from that? That's how the NRSV renders that word. And the other word, or synecoite, Paul made up. And it's found no almost, well, one or two other places, but almost nowhere else in the entirety of Greek literature. And there were other words for homosexual in the Greek literature that he could have used, but he didn't. He used that word. He made that word up. And what it means is a real head-scratcher. It's such a problem that some translators haven't even tried to render it. The Revised English Bible puts both of these words together uh, and simply says sexual pervert. The message translation renders the phrasing, those who use and abuse each other and use and abuse sex. The updated New Revised Standard Version reads as follows. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. The sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, men who engage in illicit sex, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Well, that's interesting. It's a somewhat better translation. Still not sure about that, how they get from the Greek word soft, male prostitutes, but men who engage in illicit sex does kind of relate to that word that Paul made up. So in other words, oh, and by the way, that's it. Uh, the same word is used over in a passage in 1 Timothy chapter 1, but 
The First Corinthians passage is very difficult to translate. It's hard to get your hands around it to comprehend what it is that Paul is actually writing here. And the references that he used are not clear. So, what do you do with it? And, and it's in a particular cultural context that isn't ours. So, what do you do with it? So, if you don't have the First Corinthians passage or the First Timothy passage, if you don't really have the Romans passage, because we don't, and if you can't go to Leviticus for its prohibitions there, what else do you have? Certainly, you've got more to work with, right? No. That's it. Two Hebrew Scripture passages that are culturally conditioned within the context of pagan worship rituals. A passage from 1 Corinthians that is difficult to translate at best. And a passage in Romans where Paul's understanding of the cause of homosexuality is rooted in idolatry and certainly doesn't apply to what we understand from psychology and biology about human beings and human sexuality. In other words, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? It says absolutely nothing. The opposition to it is based upon a cultural aversion, a misunderstanding of biology and psychology, and quite frankly, simple squeamishness. And that's not good enough to exclude 5 to 8 percent of the U.S. population from full equal rights. Wow. So in other words, I do pay attention to the Bible. Those people who say that, well, Greg or other pastors who uh, have essentially said that homosexuality isn't an issue, they don't pay attention to the Scriptures. We most certainly do. We read it in the original languages, we comprehend it, we study it, we apply it, we consider it within the context within which it was written, within the context within which it was originally heard, and within our context today. We utilize the tools of tradition and experience and reason to interpret and apply, expand upon, amplify Scripture, a good Wesleyan Methodist approach to Scripture. We don't simply disregard it, but when we've read it, as I just have, it's pretty clear that the Scripture is silent on the subject. I pray for the United Methodist Church as it moves forward. I pray for our sisters and brothers and siblings who are continually under oppression because of this issue. I pray for those who feel they have to leave because of this issue. But my friends, God's grace calls us to love and to acceptance to affirmation and reconciliation. God's grace calls us to live as the family of God.
and share the love of God with all God's children, regardless of where they're from or who they are, what their ethnicity or racial background may be, what their national background may be, what their sexual orientation or gender identity may be. God calls us to welcome and affirm all of God's children in the family of faith. And I give thanks and praise to God that I pastor a congregation that recognizes this and celebrates it. Praise for me and for my fiance and serves by our side, sharing God's love with all. What does the Bible say about homosexuality? Absolutely nothing. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Let me may God's people say, in your